Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to OK Sis. We are two cultural observers and curious minds who happen to be related. I'm Scout. And I'm Maddie. Get ready for some serious sororal energy. As we chat about and comment on one another's current fixation of the week. Ready, Ready, sisters? Welcome back to OK Sis. My name is Maddie, Madeline Rose Mayo, but, you know, some people call me Mads. Oh, okay. Well, I am Scout Sophia Sobel. That's SSS, baby. Did you ever realize that? Did you ever realize that? Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's right. crazy. I'm MRM. You are MRM. That's doesn't mean anything to me, but okay, very cool. So, um, yeah, welcome. We are the sisters behind OKSIS podcast. Uh, Scout talking here, three years older. Mads over there, three years younger. Love the way <laughs> life works out in that way. Just you really... always have to establish the age uh, differentiation just so that people know where we stand, you know? I don't want anyone thinking I'm younger than you. Like, I've experienced three more years on this earth, and I will let it be known. You do have a lot more wisdom than just three more years above yes. me, it feels like. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Like, statement. can you believe that you were you got married at the age I am now? Yeah, and I, which which is a great segue, I moved in with my then boyfriend, now husband, when I was 22 years old. And here we go, guys. Sisters, it has happened. What we thought would never happen has come true. Mads this weekend moved in with her boyfriend. In the words of Monica Geller, now I have to live with a boy. Okay. Yeah. So we actually haven't caught up because yesterday you were moving all day and I was like having such FOMO. I felt like I was really um, missing Don't out. Don't have any FOMO. Don't literally? have any FOMO. Moving literally? is such a bitch. I, I love moving. I literally. Send call- no one ever. You're a sociopath. I love, I don't like helping other people move, but I love moving myself. I am like, let's go. This is fun. Anyways, I literally had so much FOMO because I called mom like three times because she was helping you. No answer. Then I FaceTimed you. No answer. Then I FaceTimed mom again. No answer. Then I FaceTimed your boyfriend. Finally, he answered. So I got the update around 3 p.m. as to the progress of the move. I was like standing by, dude. Yeah. So I moved in with the boyf and it's it's been delightful. It's been splendid. I think a big takeaway and I would like to part, you know, give this wisdom to our, our dear listeners and our dear sisters is just don't set expectations for certain big life moments. I think I was just like, I was so excited. I mean, I'm still so excited to live with him and be with him every day, 
but I think I got really overwhelmed with the process. And I'm usually a kind of person that when I move in, I want everything to be done that day, which I just is obviously not realistic. And which I guess I, I also pointed out to you, usually you move into one room. This was moving into a two bedroom whole apartment. And combining two people's stuff. So I just wasn't prepared for that, which made it a little more overwhelming for me. I ended up in tears because I was so stressed. And, and I was just like, I just wanted to be all perfect and done. But it's like, no, our couch isn't here yet. A lot of our furniture isn't, hasn't arrived. So we kind of have to be in this limbo period for a couple of weeks regardless. So I think just, you know, accepting that just, you know, one day it will all come together. We'll find a place for everything. And the more important thing that I need to focus on is that Ben and I are living together under one roof. We have the same home, which is so crazy. Like today we went to the beach with our family and I was like, we're literally going back to the same place right now. Like how fucking weird, dude. No, it's wild. I mean, it's so crazy. I, I mean, it was so long ago when, when Adam and I moved in together and I was so young, but I definitely remember I remember the first night that we moved in together so distinctly. We didn't really have so much furniture. We didn't have our couch. And we ordered mushroom and anchovy pizza from down the street. And we sat on the floor and ate it out of, like, paper plates. And there was a moment where I was like, what the fuck did I just do? I moved in with a boy. I I have a year lease with a boy. Uh, but it's, it's so fun. It's so funny. I also got pizza. I think that's, like, the de- – that's, like, you – it's a – mandatory moving meal you have to get a pizza it's just easy you don't need you don't need really need plates like it's very easy so yeah I mean um I did I did post something on Instagram asking for tips on living with a boy and I got some really good ones did you see mine yes yours was don't shit with the door open that was not mine at all oh not at all I mean it wasn't no, it wasn't. It was close. It was separate bathrooms, but I did not say don't shit with the door open. Yes, you did. No, no I, I have the evidence. Go look right now. Like, okay. unless I got drunk last night, which I don't recall I doing. think you did. Okay, go look because okay, I, I want the did, record to show. You said don't shit with the door open. No, no, I didn't. Can you please look because I want the record to why show. Is that, why is that so bad? Why are you just because I thought it was funny. I'm not. I'm not embarrassed. I just one would never say that. Two, I don't really like words in my mouth. So please, please oh, do Jesus. do your due diligence. Do your research. Okay, talk amongst yourselves. Talk amongst yourselves. No, we're not talking amongst yourselves. You're just gonna look and talk to me at the same time. Okay, so we want to know details. We want to know what's set up, what's not set up, what the vibe of the apartment is, what your room looks like. You know, no one's giving oh, me okay. pictures. Okay, wait, I found it. Yes, I didn't um, say that. You said separate bathroom. Yes, thank you. Jesus. And I interpreted that as don't shit with the door open. That says more about you than it does about me. Yeah, so a lot of people just said, like, don't. Don't what? <laughs> oh, like, don't move in with your boyfriend? Amazing. Yeah. Love it. And it said, like, schedule sex, which, boy. Um, oh, your, said, sec- hey. your sex life is about to change. Uh, okay. Because no, you, I, it is. It is. Because before you would see each other, what, like once, twice, three times a week, spend over. And so it's like this designated time. But now you just have 24-7 time. Yeah. So something that actually 
I think I'm going to thrive on. And I'm taking this directly out of Esther Pavitsky's special uh, to opt for my name. And she said, which I just feel on a, on a visceral level, the best time to have sex is at 11 a.m. You have already yes. pooped. Yes. You've already had your coffee. You ate a little something. You feel nourished. You feel ready. You're, you're just empty. about, you're, you're, you're like the most energized of the day. Most energized. You have sex. It's great. Why did we designate post-dinner night as the sex time? I'm sorry. No. I am bloated. I'm done. Do you know do my favorite time? What? My favorite time is when you're going on a date and you're getting ready. So you're super excited and you're getting to look cute and you have sex before you like put your makeup on and put your dress on. Like you just got out of the shower, like you're getting ready, whatever. And you do it before you go to dinner. That way, like. But then you're schwitzy. I mean, re-shower, you know, it's not like, I mean, that, (laughs) I guess, I guess that sex, that's having sex in that moment is not supposed to be a whole production because you have to go to dinner but it's just such a great way and then you're stoked at dinner like you're all rosy cheeked and it's like you're not thinking about it all night you can eat all you want because Mm -hmm. then you won't be bloated and Mm -hmm. it's just the bloated is really an issue you know oh yeah dude yeah like i had in and out last night nothing's happening after no 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 the pizza was gurgling and jumping in 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 just (laughs) oi so okay you still aren't giving me any details. I've Sorry. Already- okay. So the reason I didn't take photos is because there's still a lot of boxes that uh, we need to unpack and it just doesn't feel like obviously where it needs to be. So that's why I didn't take any photos. But um, basically the vibe that we're going for is Jenny Kane. I want it to come straight out of the Jenny Kane catalog and a Jenny Kane Instagram. It's going to be like when you walk in, oh, did Jenny Kane just like show up here? That's what I want. Okay. And the the ba- the bedroom is actually complete, so I will show you a photo of it. And it looks like the Surfrider Hotel. I mean, I'm gonna I need to post on Instagram and be like, oh, oh, sorry, Surfrider, is that you? Oh, I didn't see you there. Is that you? Okay. Can you send me that photo? I'm just over here begging to be involved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's just a. I mean, our stepdad came in to see it yesterday, and he was like, "You guys are bougie," and I was like, "Yeah." Well, yeah. Like, I'm not trying to ever deny the bouginess. No, it is, we are it is, so bougie. Is it is, is uh, very apparent, and it is living for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so funny coincidence that you moved this weekend, and I decided where I'm going to move to next, which is a very funny story. But I am moving in to a house. I'm not going to name the specific location because it is a small neighborhood. But I am moving into. Because okay, Scout, all all our sisters are gonna come. Look, I don't. You. I'm not gonna put where I like. Speci- I mean, no, I guess I, know, I. I know. I mean, I guess I have said where I live now. Okay, just, you don't need to say it. It's saying. it's a very cute neighborhood, and um, it's very like family friendly, etc. And it's a huge house, and it has a huge backyard, and so. Adam and I are shifting from our urban modern loft with concrete ceilings to have a very homey house, but we have sort of decided how we're going to decorate it and it's going to be super modern inside and be contrasted against kind of like this older, more homey vibe. So I'm really excited about it and I'm going to have a beautiful outdoors and we have lemon trees and avocado trees and a garden and celery growing and I'm so excited. Are you going to be... A gardenista now? 
I'm going to be a gardenista. I'm also copying you on the white couch situation. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank God. I mean, yeah. Oh my God. My house, like, it's hard to, like, it's hard to get super excited because I have a very specific vision in my mind. And if you saw pictures of the house, you wouldn't necessarily think it's very me because it still has the last tenant who is coincidentally a family member's um, stuff in there. And so it's like very different. We have very different vibes, but Mm -hmm. it is going to be so pretty. I am, it's just, it's just kind of, it's the next step that Adam and I are, are moving into more home, more space, backyard for the dogs a second room for a guest bedroom, <clears throat> one day nursery. And uh, yeah. Wow. This is, you know what? Like so much growth. So, so much, much growth. So much progress is being made. Are we in adults? Both of our lives. We're adults. I mean, it sure seems like it. That's for sure. I, I don't know. know if it's uh, real. If we're, I think we're faking it, but. I'm not faking it. There's there's no way I'm faking this. This is real. Yeah. It's like a simulation for me. So I feel like we're both making really big steps this weekend. I know. And the same type of steps. There's it's parallel. Moving moving with our significant others into the next step of our relationship. Yes. Yes. I know. If you sisters are you do live with your significant other or you are moving in, we want to hear from you. I want to hear like horror stories because there shouldn't be horror stories but just like funny things I, I like to hear these types of stories because it's so fun to discuss with Ben about it like I like one person also wrote for tips like beard hair everywhere just accept it and I was like oh, I can't yeah so, we should actually do we should do like a check-in in three months and do a fix me up on kind of your experience with the first three months moving in with your significant significant other and then I couldn't relay tips since I've lived with mine for years now um and that would be fun because I think yes. that that's you know I think it's it's just not something all my friends live with their significant others so I haven't had anybody move in with you know and had to talk about this topic so it's fun yes for sure I'm down let's uh I'll pencil you in my schedule oh yeah thanks I'm really feeling um feeling far away from you you know, it's just uh, well, we're gonna see each other this weekend, so don't don't get too sad. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, I am. Okay. Right. Anyways, a little housekeeping, sisters. If you love listening to OK Sis, the best thing you can do to help us out and grow the sisterhood is to text your favorite episode to a friend. That helps us so much, along with rating, reviewing, and subscribing, or subscribe, rate, review. Woohoo! We love five star. Re- we love five star ratings. Anything lower, just DM us and write the number four three two or one. Um, and then we have a newsletter that comes out every Monday. You can subscribe, uh, link in the show notes. And then we also have a secret Facebook group, which is, I have to catch up. I'm a little behind. Girls are posting and I, and and I'm behind. So we have a secret Facebook group. It's okay sisters and women only, por favor. And that is about it. Yes. All right. Let's get into this episode. Oh, I just like need to take a deep breath before I even announce our guest this week, we had the just, the majestic, the wholesome, the nurturing Deepika Chopra. She optimism is- Optimism doctor. The opti- the, the trademarked optimism doctor. So she is the only one in the world that can hold that title. And 
she is just magnificent. I mean, we walk through, there's so many gems in this one. It's, it's long ones. I'm just like, buckle up because we couldn't stop talking to her. We, there's just so much knowledge that she was, um, she was able to provide for us. And, you know, a lot of it, uh, we talked a lot about toxic positivity, which I have been wanting to talk about on this podcast for a long time. So she was the perfect person to really dissect it and understand why that is something that we need to be moving away from, especially in the social media world. And we also talked about like the power of positive affirmations and how sometimes positive affirmations can't work unless you're using them correctly. She has like this whole philosophy around it, which I found to be super interesting because that's kind of up my alley. And we just also talked about her professional career and how she has kind of how it had many iterations and she was exploring until she really hopped on to this kind of psychology, um, mental health, mental wellness and then became the optimism doctor. And she has an incredible podcast. So she's she's just a delight you guys are gonna love her so get your notepad out write some notes get that mental health shit going and enjoy enjoy sisters sisters my goal these days is to always look put together when i leave the house nothing over the top or super dressed up or anything like that i just want to look put together and feel good about what i'm wearing in an effortless yet refined way When I look at my closet every single morning and think about what I can wear that is chic and intentional, I usually end up grabbing one of my Jenny Kane sweaters and I always end up loving the way I look and the way I feel in them. You all know, sisters, that when I envision my highest self, I am wearing Jenny Kane. Their sweaters are the quintessential must-have item. I cannot stop wearing my Marina set. I throw it on and immediately feel like I'm in a Nancy Myers movie. Like I could just walk on the beach in Santa Barbara. It is the coastal grandma aesthetic. My favorite Jenny Kane sweater right now is their everyday sweater in taupe. This is the definition of a staple that every woman must have in their wardrobe. Sisters, trust me on this one. I wear it with leggings, oversized jeans and a little kitten heel or a silk maxi skirt. Legit, Mads and I are so obsessed with wearing our Johnny Kane sweaters that we've literally shown up both wearing the same sweater once. The white alpaca cocoon crew neck, which is this deliciously oversized sweater. Yeah, that moment takes the cake. Both of us walking in with our matching Jenny Kane sweaters. We're obsessed. Can't take them off. Wearing them every day. The type of staples that save your outfit. That is what I love about their entire collection. It is truly the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless designs. You can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. Find your new uniform at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code OKSIS at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code OKSIS. O-K-A-Y-S-I-S. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. Dr. Deepika Chopra is an optimism doctor, professional psychologist, mental health advocate, the founder of Things Are Looking Up, and host of the newly launched Looking Up podcast. Dr. Deepika Chopra is working towards redefining the popular yet impossible notion of being positive all the time, exposing toxic positivity and advocating for resiliency over perfection. Her work has been featured in Forbes, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Goop, Variety, etc. She holds a doctorate in clinical health psychology, completed a double postdoctoral 
fellowship at UCLA and Cedar sinai Medical Center and specializes in helping clients from individuals to Fortune 500 companies increase their optimistic mindset, happiness, and resilience, inspiring them to achieve their highest potential and develop proactive, positive mental health tools. She created the popular Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck, a deck of 52 cards, each one offering a holistic and science-based prompt and su or suggestion to increase optimism based on her practice. Dr. Chopra has a special interest in supporting and empowering women, that's our kind of girl, through their personal and professional growth and is always looking for ways to contribute and serve. She recently created created the Things Are Looking Up Heroes Project, a free emotional health resource for frontline workers fighting COVID-19. Without further ado, Deepika. <laughs> Woo! That, wow, that was a mouthful. I was like holding my breath the whole time. I can breathe now. <laughs> I mean, you're just multi-talented. You, or I would say just highly like an expert. <laughs> just you went for it with all that education. I mean, I didn't get my bachelor's, so this is quite impressive to me. Um, I was one of those people that in undergrad, I like worked really hard to graduate early because I wanted to join the workforce. And then I realized after a couple years, no, I just want to go back to school. <laughs> and then I went back yeah. to school for a million years. That's the, that's the way to do it. I know. It's interesting. Sometimes I kind of crave that scholastic experience again. But then I, I know, feel something like for you, you were thinking of getting your master's. But I think it was more out of like, I don't know what to do next with my life. Mm -hmm. So like, let me just Which go is back not, to school. Not that, it's not a good It's decision. not a good, good way to do it. You know, like you were very highly focused, got your shit in a very specific specialty. And, you know, and I, you are the I, optimism doctor. I love school. I like realize that about myself as an adult. Like I actually love the, I love everything about being in a school setting. Um, but I did not come to this career or where I am now in a linear fashion. I did not major in psych as an undergrad student. I, my first job um, in school was I, wor I worked um, at a punk label, at a punk music label out Amazing. here in LA. And then I was an investment banker. And then I worked I mean, in just public naturally, health. you know, going from <laughs> punk to investment banking, like it's just the natural progression. <laughs> it when I look at it all, it's funny, like what I'm doing now is such a culmination of everything. Um, I was in business for for a while. And um, it, there's so much that I'm an entrepreneur now and I run my own business. But um, and I work with a lot of corporations, but like every single thing that I've done, it only makes sense to me now where I'm like, oh, obviously I do this and this is what I do. And even in the field of psychology, when I decided to go in it, like I'm not doing anything right now that is like traditional in any sense. Like I kind of just, I went through it and I credit so much to that foundation and I would not be doing what I'm doing now if I didn't do my master's and my doctorate in it and get all the like hours, thousands and thousands of clinical supervised hours and and all of that, but I'm like literally doing my own thing and not doing anything. Um, I'm not doing anything like in a traditional psych way. It's not, I, I don't think, practice like that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people discredit where they came from a little bit where they'll be like, well, that was a random job that didn't really um, surmount to where I am today or didn't like create the actual path where I am now. But actually you've learned something from every single experience. And I think we, I mean, I'm speaking from experience. Like I, I look back at some jobs and I'm like, eh, that didn't really 
shape me, but you know what? It did. And yes. all of those experiences amount to where you are today and what you're done, no matter if you've like, you're ashamed of them or it was just like totally off the charts, but it, yes, it, it shaped who you are. A hundred percent. I yeah. like, and I'm in that place now in like a retrospect or like an intentional thinking where I'm like, I literally can like pinpoint what I learned from each position or each industry I was in and how it directed me to the next or why it pushed me to the next. And there, like, I wouldn't change anything. Like it was definitely where I needed to go. And it's interesting because my family, like the criticism on me was like, oh, she's so into so many different things. And then she like gets into it and she has commitment issues and, and she doesn't finish anything that she starts. And it was a big joke with everyone because grad school's no joke and getting your doctorate is very long. And everyone was like, I didn't know. I mean, it's such a, it's kind of a messed up thing, but they were like, let's see how long she lasts. And it was obviously the most important and best thing for me. I found my true calling and I like could have done more after I finished the master's, the doctorate, did my dissertation, like, and I am doing more. Like I, I flew through it and I like, it definitely, it was more about finding, you know, what was right for me and what, um, a combination of like what challenged me, what I was good at, but also like, you know, what I wanted to get better at and what I was most passionate about. Yeah, I can totally relate. I went through so many different iterations of this, iterations of that, working in publishing, working in digital media, working as a gelato scooper, like just so many random things, going to five different colleges and then never graduating. And so when I started my company now, you know, everyone was like, oh, well, we'll see how long she goes with this one. And uh, I've actually stuck it out. Thank you very much. Yes. But sometimes um, that fuels us. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, literally. My dad was like, you sure you have time for this? Like you want to commit it? And I'm like, fucking watch me. And so yes. it is interesting, though. I think that some of us, I think that we are taught very young and it's it's refreshing to hear you say that you didn't find psychology till a little bit later. Yeah. We are taught very young to find to like figure out the thing when we're seven years old about what we want to do and then you know do it but when we actually kind of dabble in a bunch of different areas it really narrows down that passion and helps us find it in a much more distinct way and then we can carry on and look your career will probably change knowing this is your background it'll probably evolve now you have a podcast you know right. it goes through we don't have to stick to the same structure all the time I like would never have guessed the type of brands that I partner with and the type of industries that I'm now like in or that I teach workshops to, or that I started my own business and have like an actual product. Like I would have never thought that being in the like mental health, proactive mental health and like psych world that I would ever be doing, you know, partnerships with beauty brands or um, tech companies. And now it just like all makes sense. And I like, there's so many opportunities and things like my job is so different on a day-to-day -day basis that I think I need that in order to stick with it. It's just part of who I am. And I would have never thought that I would have my own product and, and I would love it so much. And, and of course, I would have never known a podcast because I didn't even know what that was until a little bit ago. Um, but yeah, the only podcasts I actually listen to are true crime. It's not what I host, obviously, but um, I'm just getting into podcasts um, yeah. as I'm hosting one. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, no, we, it's it's nice to have that, that diversity of uh, tasks or projects. I think it's a very like modern 
woman worker like that is like what what we're uh all aspiring to okay before i know i don't want to interrupt this conversation but we have to do current fixations oh yeah completely you know just jumped on in which i love fascinating we're gonna get to it all but we got to do current fixations okay so my current fixation is my tortoiseshell valley I wear sunglasses that I just bought the other day because I had not purchased a new pair of sunglasses for like four or five years. They were banged up. It was time. And I usually go with an all black sunglasses. I've always done that from like Ray-Bans to Celine to like whatever brand it is. It's all black. And this one, I kind of went with this angular cat eye kind of tortoiseshell. Here, I'll show you actually so she can see. Yeah. Yeah. So they can't see, but how cute are Ooh, they? Ooh, like, those are super cute. Right? And they're kind of cat eye but they still have like the angular, big, I like yeah. the geometric they situation. Look great on you. And so I love them. And it's just been nice to actually wear sunglasses that aren't scratched lenses. You know yes. what I mean? So yeah, I'm into the tortoiseshell that. look. I think that's like a really nice next I'll step show up you something. Oh, <laughs> my God. Tortoiseshell. Are those Warby Parker? What is that? Yeah, they are. Yeah. I have the Warby Parker ones, too. The tortoiseshell Warby Parker ones. They're, so like, good. huge, and now I'm, like, used to them. And I, lo- I love them. Oh, the those Warby- are the exact ones I have. No way. They're yeah. um, they're called Kimball. Yeah, those are the exact I ones I love them have. because I lose all my glasses, and I actually had LASIK eye surgery a while back, but when I got pregnant and had my child, my eyesight changed and went bad again. Just one of the many things that happened to my body that I wasn't aware of that was going to happen after I had a baby. But um, I love these because I, like, I cannot keep a pair of glasses straight or like I will sit on them or like roll over on them. And these are like so affordable Yeah. that I just, and even like they're so fast, like when I've and lost a pair, I can them. just like, yeah. You can yeah. find them. They you are can find these because they are like. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I literally have the same exact glasses. Yeah, Scout, your glasses remind me of like Mary Kate and Ashley vibes. Very you. I mean, that's, that's everything I want to be in more. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so my current fixation, um, I don't think I've ever said this on the pod, but I am obsessed with matcha these days. Oh. And I have two brands that I would like to recommend. First is Clever Blends. It's C-L-E-V-R. And they make a matcha latte mix. So they put like oat milk powder I don't know what it is inside so that you could just put hot water froth it up and it looks and feels like a latte it's like milky like that does it work if you do it iced yes ma'am and I don't do it iced though okay and then the second one I recommend is four sigmatic and they have this matcha blend again like a latte type of thing and of course we all know we're ashwagandha whores over here we love ashwagandha so it has some of that in there, has some lion's mane, some of those nice little mushrooms to keep you on track, keep you thinking and clear. And it's been such a good like afternoon pick me up. You know, you want to reach for that coffee, but it's, it's like a nice little ritualistic thing. And I feel like it's doing something for, for my brain. So I would highly recommend. I love that. Okay, Deepika, what is your current fixation? So funny you say that. So I have never had coffee before. But I am, I know, I am a tea connoisseur and I love matcha and I have been for a long time since I was actually pretty young. Like I would go to the Japanese market and like make matcha um, just with like water. I only obviously got into lattes over the last few years since it's become big. But my fixation right now is also in the matcha family and it is matcha bars, matcha lemonade, those bottled, the bottled lemonade. I love it. I can't get enough of it. 
And whenever I see it in a store, especially because I'm not like in the heart of the city right now, I'm sort of out in a nearby beach town staying at my parents. Whenever I see it in a store, I get really excited. Um, and then I can never pick one of anything. So I have to give you a couple more because I'm just not, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And what I'm not good at is being concise or making small lists. So my other fixations are, um, okay, I've got two more. One is that since I'm staying out here by the beach, taking beach walks with my son and husband has been amazing. And we kind of found um, our little path and our little area to do it. And it's like little picnics or little walks. It's been like so good for my mental health. And then the other thing that's been really good for my mental health is I'm really into Southern Charm, watching the show Southern Charm right now. I had not seen it and I'm like binge watching. And I, let me tell you, let me preface it with like, I watch really serious television. I'm going to put that out there first too. But like, I am pretty addicted to Southern Charm and I am not a big reality show fan. The only other reality show that I get addicted to is Bachelor in Paradise not the bat like just bachelor in paradise and i i'm loving the southern charm have you guys seen it it's so, so good it's so interesting because i we are not big bravo people we're huge bachelor people yeah and i recently binge watched vanderpump rules and that's kind oh. of like the only introduction i had into uh bravo sphere wait is I southern charm on bravo i don't even know yeah okay <laughs> I was like, yeah. Well, I watch it on like Hulu. So I don't know because it's obviously I'm watching. I think part of it is that I'm watching something from like 2016 right now. And I think I'm like (laughs) so part of it is just like I'm so nostalgic for any year, but this year and like back in 2016, I think I'm just like, there's something so like, I already know it's past things have happened. Nothing can freak me out. And I'm just like loving going back to, I guess. 2016 in Charleston, even though I've never been. I mean, those those shows, they know how to do it right. Yeah, and just they like do. they the casting and the it's amazing. So I have to get into it. That's that's a good recommendation. So we touched a little bit about on how you got to where you are today, the kind of different paths that you took. But for those who don't know you, let's just talk about what your brand is now. What are the different products, services, things that you put put out into the world? Yeah. um, Well, the first question for some, I always get, and I'm not surprised, um, is sort of like, what is an optimism doctor? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, It's a fair question because um, I'll tell you why. So basically I have a doctorate in clinical health psychology. And for the past decade or so now I've been studying the science behind optimism and happiness and joy and resiliency. And um, a couple years into sort of doing that, this is a while back, I would always have this long spiel about, you know, this is how I practice. And I would tell my clients that, and, you know, this is very different than probably other types of therapy you've gone to. And we really focus on your strengths and what are going well. And we start to look at this thing that I call an optimism factor. And I'd start describing what optimism is and how you can increase it and blah, blah, blah. And it would be this long thing. And one time, uh, one of my clients, he was like, oh, so you're an optimism doctor. And I was like, yeah, that's so much better. Like I said, I'm not good at being concise. So I was like, that's so good. That's exactly what I do. And so I decided to shorten that long spiel. And, and you know, I decided to use that as my title and I trademarked it. 
And now I am the optimism doctor and the only optimism doctor. And um, so I, for a long time, you know, I had a practice. I still maintain a very small practice, um, but it's, uh, again, like a very small part of what I do now. Most of what I do is speaking, running workshops, collaborating with brands. I started a brand of my own uh, just about a year ago called Things Are Looking Up. And the first product is a deck of cards, optimism deck of cards. And each card has a, there's 52 of them. Each card has a science-based or holistic prompt or suggestion that actually increases optimism and resiliency and joy and works to really help to rewire your brain. And um, my passion with that brand is to release products that are aesthetically pleasing and functional and um, all have a holistic or science-backed reasoning for actually increasing optimism and joy, um, sometimes even in ways that you wouldn't know, like the colors on the cards and the design and the abstract images and the use of nature in them, like all those things. If you guys have a deck of cards, you would know. Um, they all actually have like a science-based reasoning behind them. So everything's intentional. Um, and the basis of it was really that you know, I started to be that, uh, to get a session with me, it was like a nine plus month wait list. And I'd be speaking to a large group of people. And one of the reasons I sort of went off and did my own thing out of many reasons, but one of them was, I just wanted to, to really focus more on accessible and inclusive wellness tools and, uh, like practical self mastery tools where it wasn't based on dependency on a large amount of money to self-improve or based on having to actually meet with someone and depend on them. Um, sometimes therapy can kind of be like that. Um, sometimes it's great. And other times it's like you are in therapy for years and years and you're like, wait, what's, what's happening? And I'm dependent on my therapist. So that your dependency just sort of switches. Um, and so I realized when I was speaking at this one um, very large summit that like at the end of it, what's happening right now because I'm one person and things were really picking up was kind of everything that I didn't want it to be, which was, I'm so sorry. Like the people would ask after, like, how can we get more, learn more? And I'm like, well, you can sign up for wait list. Nine month wait list. Yeah. yeah. Nine month wait list. And it's like not that cheap. And it was just getting to a point where I wanted to offer people something and really stick true to, to what sort of why I started in the first place. And so I decided to put all my tips, tricks, and tools from the past decade into a deck of cards. And the reason that it was a deck of cards and not like a book, which it will be soon too, but um, it's just like, I felt like it was another way for it to be more accessible. Sometimes you can't even pick up a book unless you feel like your mind tells you you have a certain amount of time to get through a certain amount of pages. But if you didn't have that much time, you'd be like, I don't have time to read the book or you feel like pressured to read cover to cover. Whereas like a deck of cards, you literally can pick and take with you anywhere, anytime. And it can be part of your daily routine at a specific time or a ritual, or it can be like when you most need it and whichever card you pick is the right card for you. And they're all, they're all self mastery tools and they all rely upon your own resources. So there I'm really passionate and my specialty is helping people sharpen the resources they already have. So things that are already part of you as a human whether yeah. it's your perspective or your breath, or you know, it's not about some crazy expensive uh, thing you have to buy or you have to sign up for some sort of very long-term 
um, class or something. Yeah, it feels very digestible yeah. and and easy to maintain and just something that's on your own terms. I really like that. because And I it's really interesting that you said that about therapy where you kind of become dependent. And um, I don't want to say you, you uh, can't develop tools to use on your own, but it is true. There is a dependency there where you're like, oh, the therapist needs to tell me if that's okay kind of thing. Right. I think I've fallen into a little bit where – um, trusting yourself and, and taking these tools to self-discover is really important. Um, I do want to ask specifically about resiliency. So mm. I, I read Grit by Angela Duckworth right after college, and it was, I mean, to this day, it's the only, it's, I recommend this book to every, I get it for every birthday, anyone, I gift it. It is like a holy grail for me. And I think that was the first time I really encountered the notion of resiliency and um, bouncing back from shortcomings and short ba- and, and setbacks. So kind of talk to us about like the clinical definition of resiliency. Why did that topic kind of intrigue you in your studies? So for me, um, I often start like when I work with anyone or even when I'm doing any talk, um, I often start with the definition of what I mean when I talk about the word optimism, because a lot of times I think that the term can be sort of um, misrepresented. And a lot of people have this notion that being optimistic is you know, about only seeing the glass half full or wearing rose colored glasses or Um, slapping or putting a positive sort of wash on everything. And a lot of times the criticism on that way of thinking of optimism is that it's not really realistic and um, it's, you're sort of devoid of some like realities that happen. And the true definition of an optimist and of optimism is someone that is very aware and mindful of the setbacks and the roadblocks and the less than ideal situations. They're, they're not devoid of them. They're actually really mindful of them. They just have the ability to see those things as temporary and something that they have the ability to overcome. Even if they don't know how they're going to do it, they know that they can. And so for me, that is like a huge representation of resiliency. And so I am always saying that I can't define optimism without the the idea of defining resiliency. And resiliency is really about, it's having this capacity to recover quickly from uh, something difficult or something tough. And in order to to do that, you have to obviously recognize what that tough thing is. And um, that is one of the surefire ways, and they go so hand in hand with increasing optimism. And, and being optimistic is also about, um, you know, holding a, feeling or a thought of, you know, whether it's disappointment, fear, anger, something going on, you can hold that thought and feeling and experience it. But at the same time, you experience and hold the thought of hope or that things will get better or looking back on your own grit and resiliency. Like I've been through X, Y, and Z, and I may not know how I'm going to get through this, but I know I can because I've gotten through stuff before. And it's that idea of like things are temporary and this too shall pass. Yeah, that's so powerful. I've been in therapy since I was 14, and I've had about five different therapists, maybe six. And to be completely transparent with you, I think that what you're what you're doing is so incredible because you're really 
revamping the therapeutic world, I felt that it was like maybe too clinical or that maybe they didn't empower me and that they kept me going to that office every single week mm-hmm. with this sort of, you know, crutch. They were my crutch, but they never made me, f- they never made me feel as if I could handle it. They always made me feel like I, well, I also have bipolar disorder. So I've been told from the clinical psychology and psychiatric world that I suffer from a disorder, that I have this thing that I'll always have, that I need help, that I need to, I can't function without X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, I kind of got tired of that messaging because everything you've just said, no therapist has ever said to me in a therapy room. Like no one has ever said, look at what you've come through. Like you're so resilient. Like look at all the good things. No, you can get through this. So I actually hired a coach, which I'm sure you have like a million bajillion thoughts about, but I hired a coach who does not come from the psychiatric or therapeutic world worlds does not have her master's or clinical trials and she's actually taught me more than all these years of therapy because her message is so much more aligned with yours and so I really believe there's this new wave of looking at mental health that you're really at the forefront that's coming about and I can say that because 14 years ago I was in an office with a dude who said you're clinically depressed oh well let me talk about my life like it's mm-hmm. just come so far. And so to hear you explain these things are the things that I'm just now at 20, almost 29 years old, realizing in myself that I am resilient, that I do have grit, that I can get over these things, but no therapist ever told me that. And it's upsetting. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, there's some amazing therapists out there and then there's some not so great ones, just like in every profession. And it really is a personality thing. Like, I think like we just oftentimes are, you know, forced to pick someone because they're, you know, the only person we've heard of, or it's on our our insurance. Mm -hmm. It's on our insurance. And actually like, you know, we put a lot of thought into our partners or who we're friends with, or if we're hiring someone and it's the same thing with like someone that's working with you on your life. Um, I think we need to have that, that connection with someone and make sure that we're on the same page. And it does take trying people out. And I'm in no way saying that, you know, all of therapy is negative or you can't learn anything from it. I think some therapists are brilliant and some therapeutic relationships are so beneficial. It just, a lot of the, the traditional therapy and, and me having gone through it in grad school and learning all the theoretical perspectives that were available to us as, as traditional therapists, um, it's a pretty antiquated field. And it's like, that's the setback of it. And a lot of times I think what's tough is there's so many um, guidelines and rules and regulations and ethics and things that are also antiquated. Some things are great and you have to learn them, but also things that are antiquated that really hold um, a clinician back from doing the best that they can do or, or exploring. And I always had the most amazing supervisors at like, you know, five-star quality places like UCLA and Cedars that trusted in me. And when I wanted to be innovative in the way I practice, even if it wasn't happening, you know, for example, being at UCLA and, and me being really interested in sensory-based visual imagery or using visualization to help people. And I'd learned so much about it. That's what I, I, I did my dissertation on increasing optimism using visualization and, you know, a place like UCLA being like, that's really cool. Not a lot of people are doing it right now. We're certainly not doing it here, but you can use our patient population. We trust in you. And having that validation from a big institution um, 
that was willing to sort of think outside the box is so important, but it doesn't happen everywhere. And now, you know, so many years later, almost every big campus that has psych training has like, you know, the school of happiness or the school of, um, you know, positive thinking and, and positive psychology. Um, you know, it's, it is a field that's getting more and more popular. And I was, obsessed with the founder of positive psychology, Dr. Martin Seligman, like he is the founding father of it, but it's really about focusing on strengths. And of course, like, um, you know, I am a big uh, believer in medication when medication is the only option and it's beneficial for people. Like I have seen a lot of, of situations where, you know, there's a chemical situation going on and medication, thank God for it. And I've seen people do really well on it, but um, I don't specialize in that. Um, I, you know, I think that um, really there's this gap and we're just starting to come around to it, but focusing on what people are good at and their strengths and what makes them happy is sort of counterintuitive for a lot of traditional therapy that really focuses on what's going wrong and giving this space week after week for worst case scenarios and most horrible situations or, you know, things that make people the saddest or the angriest or the most anxious. And I think there's a lot of benefit in giving, you know, empowering someone to have that space. But I always felt like it was equally empowering or even more empowering, at least in my experience, to give people a space week after week to talk about what they wanted and what was going well. Because in reality, we as humans, we already, I, I don't have to remind people to complain. I don't have to remind people to be fearful. I don't have to remind people to be anxious. Like we're all built with that and there's nothing wrong with it. But I do feel like I have to remind people to talk about things they're proud of themselves for or talk about things that they have wanted in the past that they already created and they're enjoying right now or the things that they most, like things that light them up the most or give them passion or the strengths they have and what they're really good at. And I think that we don't have a lot of opportunity as humans and space to talk about that. So if therapy, quote unquote, since I don't call it, I do therapy, but if that, if there can be a place for that, I've seen it change people's lives like so quickly. Yeah, yeah I used to have a poster and it got um, destroyed in a U-Haul during one of my moves, but the poster said, accept the good. Mm. And all my friends, I got it when I was like 22 or something. And all my friends would be like, you mean we should accept the bad? Why? I'm like, no, we don't accept the good. We literally don't do it. The bad. Oh, we're great at that, man. Yeah. Ooh, I just got deja vu. I just got deja vu. <laughs> That's so weird. That means you're supposed to be here. Um, it's true. It means you're supposed to be here. Yeah. I um, um, yeah, so I had this poster, Accept the Good, and I think that this also correlates to this huge rise in your gratefuls. They say, what, what are your gratefuls for, right? Your gratefuls down every day. So I think that this is like so, the zeitgeist is moving towards this, this incredible message, in my opinion. Yeah. I do want to go back a little bit to, you know, you mentioned your definition of optimism and how it might have been, there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, around that word, and it kind of ties in to me for me a little bit of toxic positivity which I'm so happy you're here to talk about it because I wanted to do a whole deep dive on it because this is something that I've really really struggled with especially over the past two years since I started going to a therapist actually and I think the narrative that we are conditioned to believe that positive emotions are somehow superior to negative mm -hmm. ones and you know 
good vibes only. I have a fucking poster that says good vibes only. I'm tearing that shit up. I got it from Urban Outfitters. It's very cute. But like, no. And like, no bad vibes, no bad whatever. No bad energy. No bad energy. And it's just like, no, really out of those quote unquote, whatever negative. I don't even want to say they're negative because that has connotations. But those challenging, challenging and stressful emotions, anger and pain. That is where growth happens. That is where change happens. That is where you evolve. And so if you're only trying to chase the positive, there is no evolution of yourself. And I think for me, I've always I've always thought I was a very happy and positive person. And um, what I realized was, no, I was actually just like sweeping a lot under the rug. And not whenever I feel felt sad, I'd be like, OK, how do I get back to homeostasis? How do I get back to that mm-hmm. balance of happiness, of, of positivity? And my therapist is like, why, why do you why do you want to go there? I'm like, yeah. that's the best place. Like, why wouldn't you want to be happy? But that's that's not life. And that's kind of doing a disservice to our other emotional mm-hmm. la- or to, to our whole, whole human experience. Landscape. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about about that phenomenon and kind of what you have to say about it. I'm so glad you asked me over the past like year, I've been talking a lot about um, toxic positivity and trying to um, educate on that. And um, it's a very real thing and it's um, really peaking right now. And I actually found that it was really peaking at the start of the pandemic. Um, I had so many people reach out to me and say, oh my gosh, what do I do? I'm so worried because I'm so anxious about the pandemic. But then I keep reading all these Instagram posts of people saying that if you're anxious, it's going to make your immune system drop. And then you're like more susceptible to actually getting the virus. So first I was like, oh my gosh, like, first of all, we're going through a global pandemic and we're like, that's just the virus, but we're also going through a global anxiety pandemic, which is by the way, pretty normal. It comes hand in hand with this pandemic that we're going through. We've never been through something like this before. And it makes perfect sense why people would be worried. um, Why we're we're also going through like a collective experience of trauma and grief, but we're also going through a collective experience of resiliency right now and growth. But having said that, um, it really started me back on like my education as an optimism doctor. I always talk about this idea of not falling into the toxic positivity trap. And the way I sort of describe toxic positivity is It's like this insincere notion of positivity that can really lead to harm. Um, It's like the disregard and the vilification of normal, the normal range of human emotion. So we as humans, we are actually built to experience the full range of human emotion. Um, You know, whether that is sadness, anger, grief, happiness, excitement, all of the range of emotions are actually helpful to us and normal for us. It's just obviously to what degree and how much it impacts us. And so the problem with toxic positivity is um, it vilifies those other emotions, anything other than everything's great. Um, And it also is the complete opposite of validation and hope. So actually it is the opposite of resiliency and optimism. So the very thing that you're trying to do is actually the opposite of what you should be doing in order to build that. And yeah, examples of toxic positivity, the the thing you said it before, like the thing that gives me, that makes my skin crawl is good vibes only. Like I cannot, I can't, I could never, I could never understand what that was. I like, I recognized it for toxic positivity. Obviously this is what I do, but my skin would crawl seeing it or like, you'll get over it or just be happy, 
Um, it could be worse. That's another one. Or, you know, don't worry, be happy. And a lot of toxic, toxic positivity is yes, how we talk to ourselves, but a lot of it is how we talk to others. So it's really about this invalidation of someone's feelings and a more healthy or healthier type of positivity would be more like a sincere and truthful, kind response that offers hope and support and empathy while at the same time is acknowledging and validating someone's pain or struggle or fears. And it's really about, you know, helping someone lift themselves or others and making it sure and known that the full range of, of emotions is not just normal, but it's permissible. And um, some examples, I guess, you know, might be instead of good vibes only, I say, and I literally just did a almost like a one on 101 um, graphic post on this last week. Um, if you want to check it out it, on, on my Instagram, but it's, it's literally like five screens of everything I'm saying, like what, how to recognize what toxic positivity is and what are some better ways. Um, so, you know, like all, all vibes are welcome is a much better thing to say, or, you know, this is hard. You've got through hard times before, and I believe in you. So it's not necessarily saying, you know, you're acknowledging that this is tough for someone and you're not saying you know exactly how to get through it, and you're not saying just get over it. You're saying, I know this is hard. I've seen you get through hard times before and I really believe in you. And that's a better way. Uh, or like, you know, it's pretty normal to be fearful about this situation. Um, is there any good that you can think of it that could come of it? So getting someone to actually challenge them and think about things or when someone's upset, it's okay to cry. How can I support you is a lot better than like, don't cry, just smile. Um, or like, it's okay if you haven't found the silver lining. I love saying that to people as an optimism doctor. It's okay if you haven't found the silver lining just yet. We have time to make sense of it all. So these are much more um, validating, empowering. It's also helping someone work through their own emotions and not just giving them something. Like This is why I don't, I am not a big believer and this is actually could be kind of controversial and it's surprising to most people, but I've, I've, when I say this, but I am not a fan of blanket statement affirmations. I don't, um, professionally wise, some, I think sometimes they're a lot more detrimental than they can be helpful. Um, our brains really like to be right and our brains um, assess things for how truthful they are. And so if you hold a belief that you don't love yourself, you know, and some coach or someone tells you, whoever tells you to stand in front of the mirror and say, I love myself three times, like that's just not gonna work. And no matter, no, and not just it's not gonna work, but oftentimes it might actually make you feel worse because your brain starts to, to come up with all the reasons over the last 37 years why that's not true. And now you're shaming yourself into being like, why am I saying this? And here are all the reasons why I don't like myself because I've already worked super hard for 30 plus years to, to collect the evidence. And so I think before you use an affirmation, um, you have to first figure out, is it actually applicable to you? And do you actually believe it? And I have this like seven tenths rule that I talk about. You should believe something seven out of 10 for how true it is before you start using it as an affirmation for it to work for you. Yeah. So I use positive affirmations, but they always have to be like super grounding and in my body. And Gabrielle Bernstein says, I was reading her book. Um, there was a part about positive affirmations and she said like, if you hate your body saying, I love my body every day is not going to work. Your brain's no. going to know that's not true. You can say, 
I am learning how to have a different relationship with my body. And that's much more of a better statement that's going to get you from A to B versus A to Z in like just one statement. So I think that that's not really talked about how to really cultivate and curate and customize your affirmations to be at a point where your brain can say, okay, I, I can reach that monkey bar, you know, versus like a 10 foot tree that there's no way you're going to be able to climb up that thing. So right. I think that's really interesting. It's all about these smaller steps that are believable. And don't worry, like if you do those enough, uh, your brain is pretty quick and pretty efficient. It will work towards that affirmation that you actually wanted to use to begin with. And it'll be true because you would have collected all this evidence to support it. I like to think of it like we're all sort of like our brain is like a detective and like I'd rather, yeah, with that example, I would much rather have someone, you know, talk about one part of their body they actually like yeah. rather than like, I like my body. I'd rather it be like, even if it was as small as I like that my body allows me to walk, like it can be, or like, I like that I can see, even if they have to start all the way there, or if it was something that they physically, like, I like my, you know, whatever it is, like mouth or cheekbones or nose or whatever it is, um, just something that they like. And, and if they can't find it and it's more of a struggle, then, you know, dialing it way back down to like, well, do you like that? You know, you, you have the ability to see because mm -hmm. you do, or like if you do, or do you like that you have the ability to, like I said, walk or taste or smell? So starting with our senses that we do have the ability for if we do. Yeah. Um, something that I always, that I've been thinking more about is the whole notion of sitting in the discomfort. And I know you just had Tina Marie Clark on your pod. We had her on ours. She is like, I mean, goddess of all goddesses. And she really explained it to me in just a way I hadn't recognized before where you have, instead of running to that again the positive emotion get back to stability get you know get back to normalcy whatever that is and that's always been my uh pattern is something is off and I'm like oh I can't sit in this like let me get to let me meditate let me this let me like fix it and she really I mean I guess just with her steps she was able to convey this to me but sitting in your discomfort, no matter how long that is, if that takes a day, if it takes an hour, whatever it is, but honor yourself and, and know that you need to sit in it in order for it to, um, teach you what you're supposed to do next. So, and pass through your body and pass through. So I'd love to learn more about how that relates to the work you do and kind of what you tell clients and, or what you tell people when, um, they're fearful of that sitting part and that discomfort. So yeah, um, what we know about emotions is that the only way to get through them is to experience them. And that is what the research says there, you know, there's no, um, there's no arguing that. So if you are anxious, like literally leaning into anxiety and sort of, I like to, I always like to put a visual to things, but like, I almost see it like kneading through dough, like kneading through it, like and you might have to start slow. A lot of times with anxiety, when I'm working with someone and it might just be too much, it's not actually the best um, from a research standpoint to say stick with it and stick with the thought. A lot of times like people dealing with PTSD or you know, post-traumatic stress, like it, it's more like almost sometimes we have to see like almost like take ourselves out of it and see, see the movie of our life 
And so sometimes like the only way to work through it and stick with it is to give it some sort of physicalness. So oftentimes when I work with someone with a lot of anxiety and they just can't, they, they literally cannot, they cannot sit with that discomfort of what the thought is. There's two things. Number one, I would say from a scientific standpoint, the physical feeling of anxiety that you have does not last for a long time. So sitting through, even if it's 90 seconds, um, it will pass. So like literally just telling yourself that and, and just that alone, like the sweaty palms or the heart race thing, like it will pass. Um, number one, number two, starting to really understand that sometimes, and again, this is, um, you know, I have to put out there that, um, this is all on a continuum and it really depends how much it's impacting you. But a lot of times, um, there is a healthy bit of anxiety and it's just our perspective of what we think of it or even stress. So stress can be looked at or anxiety, interchangeable words sometimes can be looked at as, as an actual signal to your body that you need something, something needs to change, whether it's you need to slow down, you need to ask for help, you need to ask for support. And I had someone on my podcast recently who, um, her, she's a health psychologist from Stanford and she studies stress and she uh, said in stress research, and, and I agree with it because I've read it, is that stress, the definition of stress is actually a response to life. So if you just think about it, like we are all going to have stress and we are sort of fed this like, and again, it's on a continuum, but we are fed in society that stress is the devil. There's nothing good that comes from stress. Stress kills you, stress, um, you know, makes you impotent, stress, um, it will make you do really bad at work. It will make you a bad parent. It will literally, it will kill you. Um, but actually in actuality, that's true. Um, a lot of the stress hormones, not good for you, but what we found through research and there's been studies on it, that if you actually, the, the part about stress that is so bad for you physically and for your body is when you think that stress is so negative and it's going to, but, but people that actually saw stress as, you know, somewhat helpful, even though they had some of those same experiences, it didn't change like their cardiovascular, for example, it didn't um, constrict their arteries and stuff like that as much as it would with people that actually thought it was really bad for you. And so sometimes if you think of stress as a signal, kind of like she had said, which I thought was a beautiful example of like hunger is a response and a signal to you that you should eat something, you're hungry, you know, the hunger pangs that you get. And if you look at stress sometimes or anxiety sometimes um, as that similarly, like, hold on, let me stop. What is this trying to tell me? Um, do I need to slow down? Do I need to call someone for help? Do I need, you know, whatever it is that you need um, it, it like, and you solve it, then it actually can kind of be looked at as a positive thing and a helpful thing. And then if you also just look at it, like, first of all, hold up, this is normal. Now let's just find out to what degree and like how much of it I'm experiencing, but like not just off the bat that any bit of anxiety or stress that you feel is, you know, is not what you're supposed to be feeling. It's actually part of our bodies. It's a response and it means our body's working. Um, that's one thing. What I like to talk to people about with anxiety is if you can't sit in the thought, and I, I think that is a little bit, um, like I said, it, it could be counterintuitive and sometimes not good for people. If you can't sit in the thought of what's making you anxious or upset, um, and it's just too much and there, you don't feel you're going to solve it. Sometimes just, I like to have people close their eyes and think about where in my body right now 
is the representation of anxiety sitting. Like where in my body right now is, is, am I anxious? Where is it sitting? And like, oftentimes for me, it's like in my neck or like in my back, you know, or around the base of my head and, or some people it's in their facial muscles. And if you can just do, okay, I'm going to do an intervention and I'm going to breathe through and tense and relax that area. You're, you're essentially working on your anxiety and stress levels in sort of a um, indirect way. And it's a really beautiful way to sit in the feeling and not, not um, disregard it and push it under a rug. Um, but without sort of in the moment, it's very difficult in the moment of heat, kind of like when you're angry or upset or um, stressed or anxious, when you're actually having those physical symptoms and you haven't gone through it. It's, really, it's very difficult for our brains and, and somewhat impossible to, to problem solve. So to kind of sit with it and in a way that is directed and intentional and you have a plan. So I'm really big on the plan, like just to tell someone to sit in something that makes them really uncomfortable is not necessarily, like there's a part there that has to be like, you need a plan. And so that way you know with your resiliency, hey, if I ever feel this way again, I have a plan and this is what I'm gonna do. And these are the steps I'm gonna take. And maybe it's partly, I'm gonna sit down close my eyes for a second and figure out where in my body I'm holding it, do a little intervention there and relax it, and then start to ask myself, what is, my, what is this stress telling me? Is it telling me that like, I need to get out of the situation, it's not right for me, or I, I, I need to take a deep breath before I react, and I was just upset and it means this, or you know, blah, blah, blah. But it, I think having a plan um, is really important. Yeah, I do this sort of visualization thing now with my anxiety because I just have anxiety all the time. Like something won't happen. And I know that there's an underlying reason why I have it. And I'm still really learning and figuring out the kind of depths of that. But, you know, like every day at around between 9 to 11, I get anxious, just like this crippling anxiety. And so what I do is I say it's my positive affirmation that I'm safe, that I'm resilient, that I and I give myself past examples of like, remember when I got through that and felt good the next day? This is going to happen again. And then I visualize a forest and I take a deep breath and I, and the forest is the anxiety and I'm on the outside of the forest. And I say, yes. take a step in, take a step in, take one step. And I take one step further into it and I let it envelop me. And then I'm like, take another step. And, you know, sometimes I can't take more than two or three steps, but on the other side of the forest is a beach. And so mm-hmm. if I can just walk through that forest step by step and really feel safe knowing that I can walk this forest, you know, it really moves through my body and it feels pretty intense for like 90 seconds right. and then it, and then it leaves and it, 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 it dis, dis, dissipates, Disseminates. dissipates, it leaves. Yeah, <laughs> it leaves, it goes. Um, yeah, that's really powerful. And that's one way of using visual imagery in a really powerful way. And it's part of your plan. And I think it's interesting because you actually have like on a daily level, you kind of know it's coming. And so you know that there's a plan and you have something to call back on and be like, I did this yesterday, I did this the day before, I can continue to walk through the forest, not just because someone told me I could, but I know I could because I just did it. I did it 24 also, like, hours ago. not making it wrong. Like first, yeah. I was getting anxious that I was gonna get anxious yes. between nine and 11 every day. And then I was like, great, now I'm just suffering twice, fuck yes. that. And so now I know, hey, it comes and this is what I do. I get to walk through the forest every day and then I see a beach and then I'm good. Yeah, I think a big part, yeah, a big part is the shaming around having anxiety. And it's what you had just mentioned. It's 
It's this like intense, like when these emotions come up, there's another like like meta emotion that's like, oh my God, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be shaming your anxiety. This is bad. Da, da, da. And it's just this vicious cycle. And I think yes, de-shaming. And like one of the, the first line of defense for any of this is self-compassion. So yeah. the first line of defense is, am I shaming myself? Hold on. Like, this is normal. This is okay. Um, you know, send yourself love and empathy as you would to somebody else. That is the first and foremost line of defense. And then it's sort of like, what is my plan to get through it? And also weaving in the like, I've dealt with this before, so I can do it again to so the resiliency piece. And then um, for me, something that has been super exciting, especially at the start of this pandemic that I've been talking a lot about is there's some new research that came out that actually using um, the emotional experience of awe is very helpful in decreasing anxiety. And I was so, just reading about this last night, about I, awe. How yeah, crazy is that? I've been um, super vocal about it and really excited. I'm, I'm like always talking about how awe is an antidote to anxiety. And um, so being in a state of awe in any way you can, and whether that's you know, being out in nature or- Are you talking about A-W-E? Yeah. Oh, like, I was like, like, what are you guys like, talking yeah, about? Like, I, I always think like when I'm on a boat, when I'm on my dad's boat and a hundred, hundreds of dolphins come and play yes, with the boat. I mean, it's, exactly. it's, in the literary world, it's sublime. It's the sublime. Yes. So like awe can be exactly nature, um, something being transported or transcended into something bigger than you that inspires you. Mm. Looking at a piece of art, listening to a piece of music or- um, yeah, dolphins. Seeing a mom give birth. Yeah, seeing a mom give birth. Um, even the video is awful. Even, it's like amazing. It can be like, that can be anxiety provoking or awe-inspiring. <laughs> I was like, um, wow. Whatever works for you. But like also being in the presence of someone that deeply inspires you. Or I know for me during this and speaking about it, obviously during the time of quarantine, um, you know, you can do a lot of this remotely. It doesn't happen. And, and, and if you don't live in a place, like I'm lucky enough to live in Southern California where there's a lot of nature and beauty that is accessible and the weather is always great. So that's great. But, and for me, one of the surefire ways of, you know, getting into that awe is, you know, being somewhere by the, the ocean or seeing wind, um, you know, through trees or, or trees in general are like such an awe, awe inspiring thing for me. But it's also like my, my three-year-old son like often puts me in awe because being around a child does that or whatever it is for you or listening to a piece of beautiful music something that when you think of like gives you the chills or just like deeply inspires you and makes you like like I said transcends you into something much bigger than you there's um, research being done that that is a really powerful way to actually deal with anxiety and it's actually more powerful than some of the ways they originally thought like gratitude which is beneficial for so many different things, but this is a more particular, specific way to deal with anxiety. So just find more things that bring you awe. And I always like to talk about, you know, joy. Like we also live in this world where we think like bringing ourselves joy or putting ourselves in experiences that are joyful for us are selfish or indulgent. And actually, I always say if something brings you joy and it's not harming you and it's not harming anybody else, like just do more of it, more joy. <laughs> Whatever it is. 
more oh my joy. Gosh, this is. Wait, I just. I, I know. Mean. I know. We need. To, I know. We've been talking to you forever, but yeah. I, I. I can't let you leave without me asking because, yes, I do believe, and and I believe the research and all of this is so important to talk about, and your breadth of knowledge is inspiring, and I think will touch so many people. But I think in today's age. I can't let you leave without telling a little bit about your story and 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 how your mental health journey has been because I think behind all of this great knowledge comes experience that we can relate to, I'm sure, and really find even more solace in your story. So if you just want to tell briefly kind of where you come from on a mental health standpoint and what your journey has been throughout your studies, learning about this on a, on a scientific level um, and bringing it maybe to more of an emotional level for you personally. Yeah, Um you know, it was funny when I was in grad school um, for psychology, I felt like there was, you were either someone that was drawn to it because you had gone through your own mental health struggle or you were drawn to it because, um, you know, you either knew someone um, that had a mental health struggle or an addiction or you were drawn to it just because you love the brain and you love science and you love people and society and sort of just nerdy about that. And I was actually that. So I hadn't really gone through, I actually had never been through therapy until I was a grad student where you were required to go through therapy while you were also seeing other clients and patients, which is really important. Um, So I'm not saying I didn't have struggles or issues. I just didn't, I had never gone to therapy and um, it was so powerful. It was a powerful experience to, um, you know, be in that process while being that person for other people. Um, I think I experienced, I definitely now know um, after studying it for so long and experiencing it, I am someone that tips over on the side of anxiety rather than depression. Um, If there was one thing I like sort of, um, sort of teeter into, it's definitely anxiety. I, um, and that has definitely increased um, since becoming a mother and then certainly increased since the pandemic happened. Um, I, I feel like when I was pregnant with my son, uh, it was very humbling on many different levels, but I had, a, I had an extremely difficult pregnancy. I had something called hyperemesis gravidarum, which less than 2% of pregnant women have. And basically, I was sick. I, I threw up on average 35 times a day from the day I found out I was pregnant until he came earthside. It was like, you know, having a chronic um, condition that day after day really tries on you mentally. And instead of like the idea of postpartum depression, I think I seriously was probably going through perinatal or like in the process of it. Um, it just, it ravaged my entire life. I couldn't do anything that I loved. I was basically bedridden and nothing brought me joy. The things that would bring me joy before just made me vomit. My own husband's skin, like there was a scent to it when I was pregnant that just made me puke. And I don't even, I don't even know what that is after. Like I never have, it was just something different. I couldn't walk by like certain stores um, or like hair salons on the street or anything. When people used a specific shampoo while I was at a restaurant, I'd have to leave. Like it just, I couldn't do it. There was like no place in the greater Los Angeles area that I had not vomited in. Like it would like the 405, I mean, come on. I remember once we went down South for a wedding and I had like a paper bag with me and I threw up so many times in it that it broke through the bag. Like it was just like, forget it. I don't even know how to get here. Um, It was so brutal and it really tested my optimism. I found hope in nothing. Like I did not enjoy being pregnant. 
every time I'd get like one of those um, sort of like every week, if you're like on an app, it tells you like your baby is the size of a zucchini or like things I would have thought I was so like, I was so excited to download this app and just learn about it on the way. Or I thought I would be someone that would be taking, you know, pictures of my belly every week. And I mean, anything that was reminding me I was pregnant just made me throw up. I had like IV, I had to get like a home IV person to like, I hemorrhaged my vocal cords for life from it. Like it was all just, it was awful. And then I had like a pretty traumatic birth experience as well, which was completely separate. Um, by the way, he's just a miracle because he was unscathed and I was unscathed at, like for what could have happened. Um, but in a long story short, it was very humbling. I spent seven months out of that pregnancy um, with no grasp, nothing I could grasp onto where I could even use any of my tools or find optimism. And then I remember one day I threw my best friend a bridal shower because I knew I wasn't going to be able to go to her wedding. It was in Italy and it was too close to my, my pregnancy due date. And I wasn't allowed to travel at all because of the stuff I was going through. But I threw her a bridal shower and like, it sounds silly, but after the shower, I had extra like flower petals. And because I made these like ice cube flower petal things for her and I put them in my bath and I love hot water. Okay. I love showers. I love baths. When I was pregnant, water made me throw up. Like I, I had to force myself. I had to like throw myself in a shower for like less than five seconds just to like rinse off. Like I hated it. It made my skin crawl. And I took a bath and I remember I had maybe at the most 45 seconds of a blissful moment where I felt hope and excitement. Like it was my glimpse of optimism. It took me seven months to get there, but I had it for 45 seconds. And I used that 45 seconds like it was no tomorrow after that. Like I utilized, I tried to get back to it. I, I visualized it. I used it as my tool and it was just humbling. And it made me like realize like how powerful the work really is. And during the pandemic, a little bit of that kind of started to creep back in, but because I had gone through what I had gone through and use that as my resiliency, it was much easier for me to use the tools. And maybe it just wasn't as intense, obviously, as what I was going through then. But um, I've been able to use my tools and I wasn't good at practicing what I was teaching. And now I'm a lot better at that. It's still not something I'm great at and I could work better at it. I always tell people I am an optimism doctor. This is what I eat, do, like, like eat, breathe, sleep. And I know I'm really good at it. It was definitely my calling. And I, like, I feel really good about it, but I'm not the most optimistic person personally. Um, there are, I work really hard at it. And there are aspects of um, me that are more naturally driven to be optimistic, but then there are aspects of life for me that I am much more um, naturally driven and also just the experiences I've had to be really pessimistic. And for me, my real work is in like the medical health stuff. Um, I am like, that is where my work is. Like, so you can imagine with the pandemic, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm super neurotic when it comes to like, health stuff. And that's my true, like, and I always like to share with people that, um, you know, being optimistic, you're not an optimist or a pessimist. We are all on a continuum and we all have aspects of both. And we're all better at being optimistic at some capacity in our life. And we're, you know, more prone to being pessimistic in others. And it's just about finding like where you need to improve and where the work is. Um, another thing with mental health, I think I've really experienced, which is interesting, um, is that as a 
optimism doctor and someone in the mental health world, I feel like a lot of times when I've been open about my and transparent and raw about my experience, which I've always been because I'm someone that wears my heart on my sleeve. Like I cannot, I'm not someone that knows how to like hide it. Um, you're really met a lot with people that like don't know what to do with that. They're like, but this is what you do. Like you shouldn't be feeling that way. You're an optimism doctor. And so it's really about like remembering and reminding myself and validating myself like that I'm a human too. And actually like the whole thing about toxic positivity and doing what I do, like, like allowing myself to have the feelings and process them just like everybody else, just because it's what I teach. But actually what I teach is that part of being optimistic is, is experiencing that full range of emotions. So um, working with the people that are most important to me in my life that somehow kind of not, not on purpose, but have put that pressure on me to constantly be the person that, you know, hat sees the silver linings when like sometimes I just don't and like that's okay I don't honestly that was one of my biggest qualms with therapy was that I was talking to somebody and I was like do you even are you human like where's your faults like and I don't yeah. want to know all about you because that's not the point of the the you know the environment I'm in with them it's for my healing to focus on me but there was so much part of me that it was like I know you don't have it all figured out and that would make me feel better if I knew yeah. that you didn't because I feel like I'm trying to get to somewhere that's where you're at, but I don't even know where you're at. And so yeah. it's a really lot of, great that mm -hmm. you can talk about that. A lot of the theoretical perspectives that we're taught as traditional clinicians is literally like that's unethical is to not share and to be sort of this blank. But um, for me and my practice now, like in so much of my personal life is blended together with my professional life. Um, I am someone that shares my experience and journey through working towards resiliency and optimism um, as much as I teach it. So I want to be open and share like, I might know all this knowledge and I might, this might be what I'm really good at and I have access to this knowledge and I teach it, but I'm also working through it just like you and I'm on the journey as well. And I'm going to share with you my journey too. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Okay. I mean, we could go on for hours. We got to cut this. You I, I will just, literally be here till 7 p.m. Yeah. You are such a, like, a we whole We asked the last question, but it'll be a quick question. We asked yeah, all yeah. of our guests this. Very quick. Very quick. One answer. One, one word answer. If you could brag about anything in your life and don't be humble, what would you brag about? Um, giving birth and having my child and yes, definitely motherhood. It is not something I knew I always wanted to do it, but I, I've been scared about motherhood since like I was seven, way before I should have been scared. I did not know how that baby was going to come out of me. I didn't want a C-section and I didn't want a vaginal delivery. I was scared of both. I didn't know how I was going to raise a human. I didn't know if I was going to breastfeed, like all of it, like all of it. I'm so proud of myself for, and I'm proud that, you know, I'm so proud to see how much not just my body went through, but my mind has like, I have surpassed so many limits that I thought I could never, I didn't even know there was anything after the edge of it. And all of that has been through motherhood. I'm just so proud of creating this, this beautiful human that is the biggest joy. Love that. Oh, it warms my heart. Okay. Tell everyone where they can follow you, follow the pod. Welcome to the pod space. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. Um, tell everyone where they can find the deck, everything. Yes. Um, so you can always reach out to me on Instagram. It's at Dr. Deepika Chopra. I love talking with people about all of this. I, like I said, I'm a self-proclaimed 
nerd about mental health and I'm an advocate. So please talk to me. I'm, I get chatty with everybody and I always answer my DMs. Um, uh, the Things Are Looking Up deck of cards is at thingsarelookingup.co and the Instagram for that is all things are looking up. Um, and then the pod, it's called Looking Up with Dr. Deepika Chopra and you can find it anywhere and everywhere that you subscribe to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, all of it. And the cool thing about that is it is as much um, about real, uh, raw, human, transparent storytelling. And also I get to interview other trailblazing experts in the field. And every single episode has authenticity, but also real, usable, self-mastery tips. Amazing. Oh, we are so excited for our sisters to get on all of those bandwagons. And you can follow us at OKSIS Podcast. Love you, sisters. Thanks for having me. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.